Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. Today's episode, Every Wave Must Break. Eight episodes, ladies and gentlemen. This will be the eighth episode about Theodoric the Great and the kingdom that he ruled in Italy. It was never my intention to go this deep on the man, but like an onion or an ogre, when you look, there's more layers underneath, and sometimes they make you cry. Also, they're an essential ingredient in chili. My chili may be different from yours. Before we get started, I have a small correction. Last episode, I said that there were four patriarchal churches, Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch. Well, Twitter user Leonard pointed out to me correctly that there were, in fact, five, and I had omitted the Patriarch of Jerusalem. That is an especially irritating mistake, since the Bishop of Jerusalem was confirmed as a Patriarch at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, which was where the whole Blessed Mess started. Dope. Anyway, putting that behind us. Theodoric. Teddy, as I have somehow avoided calling him up until now. Today is the day to bring the madness to a close, so that we can start some new madness. It is time to finish off the reign, and indeed the life, of Theodoric the Great. We left off in 511, his Annus Mirabilis. His army was loyal, well-funded, and powerful. His realm was rich, and at peace internally. After taking into his hands the rule of the Visigothic lands in Spain and Septimania, and exerting his influence over the Burgundians and Vandals with a combination of marriage and maneuver, Theodoric was on top of the world, looking down on creation. His time to enjoy the view, though, would be limited. A shadow fell over the later years of Theodoric's reign, and it was mostly cast by one looming issue. Succession. The obvious fact staring everyone in the face, as the king aged, was that he had no sons, and that he was unlikely to produce any. Failure to effectively deal with that problem would lead the kingdom down a rocky road, not to Dublin, but to chaos and eventual disaster. While Theodoric was still alive, there would be the collapse of his carefully arranged diplomatic position, some of it accompanied by personal losses for him. That would be related to very real losses for his religion, as some key players turned from Arianism to Orthodoxy, and accordingly shifted their alignment away from Ravenna and toward Constantinople. How deeply Theodoric actually felt this is moot, but it may have influenced his behavior in later years in a real way, as he grew increasingly paranoid in the face of opposition. The problems mounted through his last few years, all the way up to his death in 526. At the end, then, we will look back at what the man accomplished and consider what it all meant. It's a lot to get through today, so onward. In 511, Theodoric was pushing 60, a ripe old age for that time, and it was obvious that he wasn't going to produce, be producing a son. The succession must have weighed on his mind, and he needed to get it solved as quickly as possible. He didn't have any way of knowing that he had 15 more years left. And so he set about making arrangements for the future. He didn't have a son, but he did have one unmarried daughter left. His youngest daughter, Amalasuenta, his only child with his Frankish queen, Audafleta. Legitimacy could theoretically be passed through her. Amaliswintha was an impressive person, if reports of commentators like Procopius are to be believed, and Theodora clearly had no concerns about her competency. But there was no tradition at all among the Goths of women in political leadership, as far as we can see. 
At least Theodoric himself did not believe that his Ostrogoths would accept Amalaswintha as their queen without a male consort. And anyway, it was a dangerous world out there. Amalaswintha would need a protector who could command the army. On top of that, Theodoric wanted a dynasty. All the really cool kids had one. So Theodoric needed to find her a husband. It couldn't be just anyone, of course. He had some very specific requirements for the man who would marry his little girl. None of them, of course, had anything to do with personal compatibility or Amalaswintha's feelings. This was about marriage, not love, obviously. And I feel a list coming on. He had to be a goth. He needed to be of royal blood, and there was only one royal line in the Ostrogothic kingdom, that of the Amals, Theodoric's line. He couldn't be too closely related, though, because, well, ew. So, Theodoric dug into his family history. Or he had Cassiodorus dig into his family history. Or he told Cassiodorus to find a likely lad and then make up some family history. Cassiodorus was actually around this time working on his history of the Goths. As an exercise in historiography, he was doing the best he could. As an exercise in dynasty building, he pulled out all the stops for his king. The continuous genealogy stretching all the way back in an unbroken line to the first kings of the Grithungi, giving the Goths a history of 2,000 years, and more to the point, an unbroken line of kingship back into time immemorial. That kind of history would mean that the Goths were older as a people than the Romans were. And incidentally, that the Amals were senior to the Visigoths' royal family, the Baltai. We've been over this before. The important thing for the succession problem was that along the way, he turned up a cadet line of the Amali, at the end of which was a young man who had grown up in Iberia, locally prominent, strong in wisdom and body, named Eutharic. Eutharic was perfect. He was of high rank in the Visigothic kingdom and could help weld the two halves of Theodoric's empire together more permanently. He was of Gothic descent, and even if his Amal heritage was fudged a little bit, it was accepted enough to get him in with the Ostrogothic elite. Roman sources aren't particularly complimentary. He was, quote, an excessively rough man and an enemy of the Catholic faith, according to Valicianus. He was, quote, an excessively rough man and enemy of the Catholic faith, according to Valicianus. But they weren't the constituency that Theodoric was trying to appease. Those comments were made in hindsight, by Valicianus anyway. Eutharic was acceptable enough for Constantinople, and that sealed the deal. Eutharic and Amalasuentha were married in 515, and a son quickly followed, named Athalaric. The two had a daughter as well, named Mataswintha. In 519, Emperor Justin underlined his acceptance of Eutharic by accepting his nomination as consul, with the emperor himself as co-consul, and adopting him as his son-in-arms. Implicit in that personal support was also approval for Theodoric's succession plans. For the moment, Theodoric felt he could relax just a little bit in that department. But if the wheel of fortune stops turning, it ceases to be the wheel. In 522, at the age of 42, Eutharic suddenly died. Theodoric was by then 68, and the only possible heir he had in country was little Athalaric, just six at the time. It was unlikely that Theodoric would live long enough to see his grandson reach majority. Eutharic's death was a pebble tossed into the pond of the Western status quo, and its ripples were felt immediately. The principle of primogenitor was a long way off from being established. These were dangerous times. A king had to be strong and competent right away. We couldn't be waiting around for a boy king to age into the role. Theodoric in an instant went from paterfamilias of a promising dynasty 
to a lame duck monarch with no strong heirs, and the other kingdoms made to wiggle their way out from under Ostrogothic hegemony. Well, wait a minute, you say. What about all those strategic marriages Theodoric had arranged? Weren't they supposed to be making sure that everyone stayed happy? Why are people wiggling? Well, that had indeed been the purpose of those marriages. But the thing about life is that stuff just keeps happening. There had been changes in the other kingdoms too. And because of them, before long it was obvious that the pebble was actually a domino, and the other dominoes quickly started to fall. Let's start with Ariagne Ostrogotho, the daughter who had married the Burgundian prince Sigismund, because there was a tragic tale. Ariagne died sometime before 516, but not before giving birth to a son named Sigaric. Gundabad, the king, died in 516 as well, and passed the throne to Sigismund. It may be that his wife and father's death led Sigismund to seek elsewhere for spiritual answers, but that's wild speculation on my part. For whatever reason, Sigismund did convert to Catholicism a year or so before he became king. So Theodoric, at a stroke, lost a daughter, an ally, a co-religionist, and a known quantity on his doorstep, all within a few years. Sigismund remarried, as you do, and as sometimes can happen, the new lady of the house took again her stepson. This is all coming from Gregory of Tours, who can be a little gossipy, and it also falls squarely into the wicked stepmother trope basket, so this is a story we have to take with enough salt to rim a margarita glass. The stepmother, according to the story, worked on Sigismund, whispered to him, and convinced him that Sigaric was plotting treachery and murder. Finally, Sigismund cracked and had his son strangled. This was around 522, and now Theodoric had lost a grandson and another potential heir. The stepmother part of the story is probably hogwash. Heinous as it is, the murder of the Burgundian prince around the same time as Eutharic's death was probably part of a campaign to free Burgundia from Theodoric's influence. This would turn out to be a poor decision for the Burgundians, but I'm just going to leave that as a tease for later and move on. Arianism was suffering setbacks elsewhere, too. In 508, Clovis, king of the Franks and general pain in the ass, had been baptized a Catholic. Whether he was converting from paganism or from Arianism is a point of historical contention, but either way, the ten-ton gorilla was now in the other guy's pocket. His conversion triggered that of other Frankish chiefs, and before you knew it, all of Francia was suddenly claimed by the Catholic Church. This wasn't just a PR problem. The Church depended on secular powers for its protection, and in return offered its support. Bishops around the edges of the Frankish dominions may have wondered how much more reliable would the protection of the committed Clovis be than that of the merely tolerant Theodoric. Meanwhile, the end of the Acacian Schism had made relations with Constantinople much easier, but the benefit of that easy relationship went more to the church and its primary patrons, the native nobility, in Italy than it did to Theodoric. Increased communication between Eastern and Western aristocrats gradually widened the divide between the Roman and Gothic factions at Theodoric's court. Historian Peter Heather suggests that the presence of this factionalism might be one reason Theodoric always held back from declaring himself the restored Augustus. Such an action might not just have irritated the Eastern Emperor, but also the Gothic party in his own court, proud of their heritage as separate from the Romans, and which was also the more heavily armed of the factions. Pandering to his Goths may also explain the hoops Cassiodorus was squeezing himself through as he worked to reconstruct the genealogy of the Amals in the history of the Goths. And then there's also a religious angle, just to make everything a little extra raw. Eutharic's death exacerbated all of these problems, 
because now there was the most dangerous of things, a power vacuum, and factions formed within factions, hoping to fill it. A sense of paranoia, that the Roman aristocracy who had served Theodoric for so many years might be turning their backs and looking toward the east, while everyone was maneuvering to be top dog once the old man kicked off, contributed to an atmosphere where personal rivalries or ambitions could spiral quickly out of control. That may partly explain the sequence of events leading up to Boethius's imprisonment and execution. We would expect the Theodoric that we'd seen up until now to have investigated the charges more fully, to be more skeptical, but that Theodoric seemed to be fading away. Theodoric's own tolerance also worked against him in internal relations. As an adherent of a minority religion himself, Theodoric had a good relationship with Italy's Jewish community, and usually backed them up in conflicts with the Catholic majority. Very laudable, of course, but it irritated that majority, and Theodoric knew it. The Catholic Church becoming stronger through the resolution of the Acacian Schism and the Catholic gains on the border may have preyed on Theodoric's mind and helped to develop a siege mentality among the Goths. Everything he had worked for seemed to be falling apart. He was beginning to feel his age, he was feeling his people turning against him, and in desperation he began to lash out. The turn, as related by the anonymous Valicianus, is quite abrupt. According to the Chronicle, it was accompanied by supernatural omens, the kinds that are usually reported before the downfall of kings and other great tragedies. In this case, there's the appearance of a comet, classic, an earthquake, and the birth to a Gothic woman of four snakes, two of which then ascended into the sky. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you there, man. Some of the so-called tyranny, as reported, sounds to us like good impartial kingship, and here's where Theodoric's relationship with the Jews comes in. Though he expressed disbelief that anyone could consciously reject the offer of salvation through Christ, he famously pointed out that he could not force men to believe against their will. That was a point that a fairly large number of characters in the future of this podcast will be working strenuously to disprove. But anyway, the result of Theodoric's tolerance was that synagogues were considered private property and were protected as such by law. The Catholic population often saw this tolerance as collusion between Jew and Arian, so the heresy of an official is always made special note of whenever a ruling involving Jewish and Christian goes against the latter. In one specific instance in Ravenna, when the Jews, quote, being unwilling to be baptized, often in sport threw the holy water that was offered to them into the water of the river, end quote, which is cheeky, though it sounds like the Christians were being a little pushy coming at the Jews with holy water in hand. The desecration of the holy water, though, had a predictable effect. Again, quote, The people were fired with anger, and without respect for the king, the consul, or the bishop, they rose against the synagogues and presently set them on fire. End quote. And here's where the bias of the chronicler becomes especially obvious. Quote, Presently, the Jews hastened to Verona, where the king was, and there the head chamberlain, Trevani, acted on their behalf. He, too, as a heretic, favored the Jews and cajoled the king into taking action against the Christians. Accordingly, on the presumption that they had committed arson, my guy, not two sentences ago, you described what was very obviously arson, the entire Roman population should furnish money for the rebuilding of the synagogues in Ravenna, and that those who had nothing from which they could give should be whipped through the streets of the city. End quote. Okay. So the response seems a little harsh, collective punishment and all that, but considering that there was no mechanism in place to investigate the case and assign specific blame, it isn't that surprising or that unusual. The whipping thing leaves a lot to be desired as well. 
But we also have to remember, though, that at this stage, the chronicler, whoever he is, is trying to make a case for the tyranny of Theodoric. And the real issue is that he sided with the Jews against the Christians, even though the Christians in question were clearly guilty of arson. The point of all this is that tensions were high. The king's paranoia was out in force in Theodoric's dealings with his latest pope, John I. John was sent on a diplomatic mission to Constantinople on Theodoric's behalf. Among other things, he was to negotiate better treatment for Arians in the Eastern Empire. It seems like an odd mission on which to be sending the Catholic pontiff. But even more odd was the instruction to demand that those who had converted from Arianism to Catholic Orthodoxy should be restored to their old faith. That seems spookily close to forcing people to believe something by force, but what do I know? John was welcomed to the capital with open arms and seems to have gotten along with everyone just fine and had a high old time. He was fairly successful at reducing the temperature of persecution, less so at reversing Arian conversions. I have to think he probably didn't try very hard on that second one. John stayed for a few months in Constantinople, longer than Theodoric had expected, and word of the chummy relationship between Pope and Imperial Court filtered their way back to the king. Theodoric, by that stage, was deeply sunk in the pit of suspicion. He saw his pope's closeness with the imperial court as collusion against him, and when John returned to Italy, Theodoric had him thrown in prison. The pontiff died there, possibly starved to death, a few months later. His successor was handpicked by the king, Felix IV. Felix pushed for greater privileges for Catholics in Italy. Given the situation, that might have gone poorly for him, but Theodoric was on his last legs and less than two months after Felix's accession, the king died. There are a few versions of how. Procopius's is the more colorful, with a neat little connection to the unjust execution of Symmachus and Boethius. Quote, While he was dining, the servants set before him the head of a great fish. This seemed to Theodoric to be the head of Symmachus, newly slain. Indeed, with its teeth set in its lower lip and its eyes looking at him with a grim and insane stare, it did resemble exceedingly a person threatening him. And becoming greatly frightened at the extraordinary prodigy and shivering excessively, he retired, running to his own chamber, and bidding them place many covers on him, remained quiet. But afterwards he disclosed to his physician all that had happened and wept for the wrong he had done Symmachus and Boethius. Then, having lamented and grieved exceedingly over the unfortunate occurrence, he died not long afterward. End quote. I'm not sure if Symmachus would have appreciated the physical comparison, but hey, Procopius is trying to paint a picture. Anonymous Felicianus is a little bit more vicious, but also probably more accurate about the cause of death. Quote, it was announced on an appointed day that on the following Sabbath the Arians would take possession of all the Catholic churches, but he who does not allow his faithful worshippers to be oppressed by unbelievers soon brought upon Theodoric the same punishment that Arius, the founder of his religion, had suffered, for the king was seized with a diarrhea, and after three days of open bowels lost both his throne and his life on the very same day on which he rejoiced to attack the churches. End quote. So we are left with the unfortunate image of poor Theodoric suffering the indignity, not uncommon, of death by dysentery. However it happened, Theodoric died on the 30th of August, 526. He was 72 years old. He'd been king of the Ostrogoths for 52 years, of Italy for 33, and overlord of the combined Gothic realm for 15 years. Before he died, he named his grandson Athalaric as his successor 
with Amalaswintha as regent. We'll come back to them in later episodes. Theodoric had also made provision for his mortal remains. His mausoleum still stands in Ravenna and is one of the more striking of the city's monuments. It's fashioned of hard white limestone with minimal ornamentation and stands in Spartan contrast to the gilded mosaics of Santa Apollinare Nuovo. Note that I said striking, not most beautiful. In truth, it's a little austere, a little off in proportion, but it is still a fascinating and fantastic structure. It consists of two levels, each decagonal, with a space below perhaps originally functioning as a chapel, and the upper chamber the actual site of Theodoric's internment. The domed roof is a single piece of stone, presumably placed with the aid of earthen ramps, though no one really knows for sure. There's a Greek cross inscribed on the bottom interior surface. There are some remnants of color on the cross, which must have made it quite a focal point. Theodoric's sarcophagus is carved from a single piece of porphyry, purple granite. It's usually described on a scale somewhere between being bathtub-like at one end and, yeah, that's just a reused bathtub on the other. I recognize that I am straying into discussions of architecture and visual art, which is always great on a podcast. I will put pictures on the website and on Instagram, but it's not hard to find images online if you're so inclined yourselves. I read a paper that suggested that the windows, which are all of different sizes, line up with various astronomical events, equinoxes and so on. Personally, I'm unconvinced. There are 17 windows in all, and it seems that with 17 windows on a round building, it'll be more surprising if some of them didn't line up with the sun on seemingly significant days. There is, though, a cross-shaped window on the east side, which illuminates a clear spot on the opposite wall on the Feast of the Annunciation. And that's pretty neat. Theodoric's body is no longer there. Unfortunately, his bones were scattered at some point presumably during the Byzantines' reconquest of Italy. Oh, is it possible to spoil history? Which was an indignity he surely didn't deserve. So what do we think? I don't think it's possible at the end of everything to be unimpressed. Theodoric had taken a band of barbarian warriors, and despite Jordani's protestations to the contrary, a fairly beleaguered band at that, and led them through the mire of Eastern politics. He'd outmaneuvered Strabo and ridden the waves of Zeno's rise and fall and rise again. His military record was not spotless, but obviously he ultimately came out on top in the war with Odoacer and again against the Vandals, and was able to, to at least stop the advance of the Franks before they reached the Mediterranean coast. He was capable of brutality, obviously. The killing of Odoacer over dinner is off-putting, but on the other hand, there's no way any power-sharing arrangement ever could have worked, and it probably would have ended in murder one way or another eventually anyway. And when you look at it that way, there may be some kind of refreshing honesty to Theodoric doing it himself. Equally off-putting, and probably much less justifiable, is the execution of Boethius and his father-in-law. All of the sources comment on it, except for the Verrier and it was absolutely a black mark on Theodoric's historical rec reputation. Immediately after his death, his more recent transgressions gave birth to legends of his soul being taken by demonic horses directly to hell. But after a few years, with perspective, evaluations of his reign were largely positive, even in the East. Procopius, whose histories we will be using a lot in later episodes, summed him up thus, quote, Although he did not claim the right to assume either the garb or the name of Emperor of the Romans, but was called Rex until the end of his life, 
Still, governing his own subjects, he invested himself with all the qualities which appropriately belong to one who is by birth an emperor. He was exceedingly careful to observe justice. He preserved the laws on a sure basis. He protected the land and kept it safe from the barbarians dwelling round about, and attained the highest possible degree of wisdom and manliness. End quote. Procopius notes the executions of Symmachus and Boethius as the only acts of injustice that Theodoric committed in all of his reign, and makes no mention of the various sins detailed in the Valicianus. Even Valicianus allows that, before the devil came into him, Theodoric was ruling the state well and without complaint. Grudgingly positive, I think we can say. That largely positive view predominates among more recent historians, too. All historians must, of course, take the nature of the surviving sources into account, and we've already talked at some length about the context of the Variae and Cassiodorus's history via Jordanes. There's also the work of the Bishop of Pavia, Enodius, who wrote a panegyric to the king, which by definition is not going to be an unbiased critical analysis. The Valesianus is actually the most balanced, in that it is not explicitly a work of praise, but that doesn't make it any more reliable or complete. The modern reaction to these realities is either to note them and urge caution and then move on, or to downplay them as plain old propaganda. Many of them comment on the two Theodorics, the successful but not necessarily exceptional Gothic war leader of his early career and the nearly imperial ruler of Italy, and most historical debate revolves around that dichotomy. In 1881, Thomas Hodgkin accepted the transformation with wonder and admiration. Quote, we have marked his strange vacillations between friendship and enmity to the great civilized empire, wherein he and his people were dwelling, and neither concealed nor extenuated any of his lawless deeds, least of all that act of treachery and violence by which he finally climbed to the pinnacle of supreme power in Italy. But for the next thirty years we watched the career of the same man, ruling Italy with unquestioned justice and wise forethought, making the welfare of every class of his subjects the end of his endeavors, and cherishing civilization with a love and devotion almost equal to that which religious zeal kindles in the heart of its surrendered votaries. End quote. More recent histories tend to be less effusive, and much less Victorian, but still largely fall on the positive side. Hervig Wolfram acknowledged Theodoric's debt to the administrative foundation laid by Odoacer's land settlement, but points out that after the disorders of the 5th century, Italy and its neighboring provinces found peace for at least a generation. Theodoric's accomplished not only the preservation of peace against domestic and foreign enemies, but even succeeded in reconquering Roman provinces. Even though the territorial acquisitions were modest, Theodoric's policy of restoration left a lasting impression. The barbarian king proclaimed himself on coins, the ruler and conqueror of barbarians. I really hope Professor Wolfram never listens to this. Peter Heather emphasizes Theodoric's military achievements, and especially the achievement of creating what was essentially a new ethnic group out of the wreckage of Attila's empire, and then taking it to such impressive heights of success. Quote, From highly ragged beginnings, Theodoric managed to knit the various components together into a highly effective military machine. The strength of their loyalty to him and the overall power that he had welded together shows up in the extent to which this army allowed Theodoric to dominate at least the western Mediterranean even before the Visigoths were added to his musters. This was no mean achievement, given the massively disparate origins of his army, and the group identity of the army he created was extremely durable. End quote. The one dissenting voice that I will note here, that of Sean Lafferty, uses a work that I haven't talked about, called the Edictum Theodorici. 
The edictum is a code of laws dating to the 6th century. It clearly relates to a kingdom with a dual nature, of Goths and of Romans. The problem is it's not clear which Theodoric issued it. Theodoric the Great of Italy, or the earlier Visigoth, Theodoric II. I am not qualified to make a judgment on that debate, so I've left it out. Lafferty connects it to the rule of Theodoric the Great, and in the administrative realities reflected in the edict, finds some evidence that not all was sweetness in light in Theodoric's Italy. The gloss applied by Cassiodorus and Enodius cannot be taken at face value, in Lafferty's mind, and the whole impression we have of the wise King Theodoric is a kind of sleight of hand, aided by cunning Roman rhetoric. In the edict, not much has changed from the state of law and justice in the late empire, meaning that it was heavily biased toward the rich and the powerful. While his propaganda stresses Theodoric's commitment to justice for all, structurally, according to Lafferty, he did nothing to root out the causes of injustices or improve the lives of his subjects beyond the narrow bands of the very wealthiest Romans and the Gothic military elite. Those biases, especially the structures that worked to the advantage of the military elite, led to increasing militarization of the society of Italy. Now we can argue with Lafferty about whether or not that constitutes a bad thing, but it was certainly a thing. After Theodoric's death, Amalaswintha and her son would find themselves under pressure from the increasingly powerful Gothic factions, i.e. the military factions. Pressure which would ultimately lead to the collapse and invasion of the Ostrogothic kingdom. But that's a story for later. All of that, though, brings us then to the end of Theodoric the Great. I'm kind of a little bit of emotional about this. Hmm. But it is time for a change of scenery. Next episode will be a themed one, like the one on war that I started the season with, and I am going to keep the topic secret for the moment just because I can, and I feel like it. After that will be the time to talk in more depth about the man who I have been presenting consistently as a villain for the last few episodes, Clovis, the King of the Franks. My heartfelt thanks to all of you for coming back after wading through the occasion schism with me. I felt like I had been thoroughly beaten with a bag of oranges by the time I finished writing that one, so I hope the listening experience was not at all similar. Thanks to A.V. Jeff, Heathrow, Anthony, and Ugo Schmidt for leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. Anthony, no, I really did mean uninterested. Ugo wondered why more people don't talk about the show, and I also wonder that. But I'm also temperamentally not very good at self-promotion, so the answer is probably there. If you would like to correct that clear imbalance of the force, please do tell your friends. Or if you don't care for the show and somehow have listened to this whole episode anyway, why not tell an enemy? Alternatively, you can always rate and review. And if you'd like, you can offer material support through ko-fi.com at ko-fi.com slash darkagespod. Like the tip jar at your favorite local organic fair trade coffee co-op. Contributions are never expected, but always very much appreciated. And finally, let me say thank you for your patience with this delayed episode. Some family medical issues uh, led to a delay, which was unavoidable, but hopefully those have been resolved and we can get back into the swing of things. That will do it for this episode. Until next time, take care. 